Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. Good afternoon, and welcome back to another exciting adventure here on Southern Sense. You're here listening to us on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, High Plains, Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, oh, the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, and our special, the one, the only guest host, the most adorable, the most beautiful, the most intellectual of all, Kel Fritzy of Red Fox Radio. Good <laughs> afternoon, my northern friend here. <laughs> Hi, Eddie. How are you? Nice intro. Oh, I'm doing great. <laughs> i got to soothe your ego somehow, right? <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. What a beautiful day out there. We should be outside playing, Annie. I know, I know. It's a gorgeous day down here, too. Nice and sunny. It's in the little mid-80s, I think, something like that. Nice, cool breeze. Oh, beautiful southern day here. Uh, we've got some great guests here, Cal. Uh, we've got uh, Doug Gibbs. Uh, he is a constitutional uh, expert. He also has a website, a blog that's called The Political Pistachio. Most people know him through that. And he's really big in the California politics, so he can give us the lowdown on everything that's going on out there. So he's coming on the first half. And in the second half, people know him by his blog, The Sultan Nish. Uh, David Greenfield. Uh, he's a Shulman uh, Journalism Fellow at David Horowitz Freedom Center. He also writes for Front Page Magazine and uh, its blog, The Point. So we got some great guests up here, and yeah. we're going to have a lot of fun. Absolutely. Well, let's get this why we, bad boy rolling. Get the show. <laughs> <laughs> I want to welcome everyone that's listening in in the chat room here on Blog Talk Radio, and I'll have the chat rooms running up very shortly over on Facebook and YouTube so I can uh, chat with you over there. But those that listen to the show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to Senior Chief Petty Officer Kyle Milliken, who died on May 5th of 2017 while serving during U.S. Africa Command operations during an operation against the Islamic militant group Al-Shabaab in a remote area west of Mogadishu, Somalia. And this is from uh, Current.com by Jeff Jacobs. University uh, of Connecticut track coach Greg Roy had not known about Kyle Milliken's dream until one day during Milliken's senior year. It was 2002. I happened to be walking through the natatorium, and there's Kyle sitting in the bottom of the deep end of the pool with a knapsack on, Roy said. 
I'm like, what? I guess that last workout finally got to him. Roy stood there and watched and waited. Finally, he comes up all red-faced and catching his breath. I go, hey, Kyle, what's going on? Milliken climbed out of the pool. My dream in life is to be a Navy SEAL, he told Roy. He was already beginning training, Roy said. He said that the stuff he was going to do was not going to be great for competing in track. I said, listen, you have an incredible dream. I support you. Milliken ran the 400 and the 800 at UConn. He had grown up in Falmouth, Falmouth, Maine, and was a standout track and field athlete at Chevrolet High School in Portland. He would not become an all-conference runner or an all-American at stores. He would become an American hero. That's why there was a five-mile Kyle Milliken Memorial Run at UConn to celebrate his life. That's why members of his elite SEAL Team 6 were there, and so was his former UConn teammates and current track and cross-country runners. Apparently, Kyle would taunt some of his of his fellow SEALs, Roy said, you guys wouldn't last a Yukon track workout. You couldn't handle bone mill. That was one of the beauties of this beautiful day. The SEALs were among the finest conditioned, toughest, and most disciplined men in the world. This is not an official race. This is a run. Matt Milliken, a 38-year-old senior special warfare operator, was killed and two others were injured on May 5th of 2017 in Somalia after he and his team came under fire from Al-Shabaab fighters. The attackers were neutralized. Milken had served in Iraq and Afghanistan. He didn't earn one or two Bronze Star medals. He earned four. The race was open to the public. Some of Milken's fellow SEALs were there to run. One parachuted onto the field inside UConn's Sherman Family Sports Complex track. After the anthem, the runners took off on a five-mile loop that that finished with a lap around the track. Outside of the throwers, everyone from sprinters to jumpers to the distance guys does the bone mill run at some point, Roy said. It is part of the law of UConn track and field program. Dan Wilson, a school record holder, who ran the anchored league in UConn's memorable upset of Arkansas for the Penn Relays Distance Medley title in 2000, heard one of the Huskies had broken his bone hill mill record. He was running professionally at that point and talked his coach, Matt Centrowitz Sr., into letting him come back to run the bone mill as part of his training because he was so mad this kid had broken his record. Bone mill means a lot to a lot of people. The most scenic and the start of the most difficult part of the run is the bone mill road. The mill that used to grind animal bones to fertilizer is gone, and the old boarded-up Yukon hydraulic research facility sits across from a cemetery. A couple of the guys maybe didn't make it, Roy said, laughing. Actually, the difficult part begins there. There is a long, sloping hill up bone mill. The funny thing is that... It isn't the hill that kills you, Roy said. You're mentally ready to knuckle down. That's when at the halfway point, the runners take a right onto Birch Road and start flying downhill. You think the worst is over. Bang, out of nowhere is a sleeper hill, a steeper hill.
I've seen some real good runners walk up that one, Roy said. They had made too big of a withdrawal from the account on Bone Mill. The guy said Kyle made running Bone Mill a miserable experience for everybody. He started picking it up and kept picking it up. Milliken walked onto the track team as a freshman. Roy told him it was not going to be an easy road for him. Milliken found that to be true. He also was a kid who found a way, Roy said. By his senior year, Milliken could be found out there on the Bone Hill Run with a 30-pound pack on his back. Two years after he graduated, word filtered back to stores. He was a SEAL. Fifteen years after his graduation, Roy would attend his memorial at the Joint Expeditionary Base Little Creek in Virginia Beach. Seals spoke, Roy said. His wife, Erin, spoke. One of his teammates here, Trevor Sykes, spoke. And one of his commanders spoke. It was incredibly powerful. One of the Seals even mentioned the bone mill run. The last person who spoke couldn't be there, so there was a video Kyle and some of the SEALs had done an exercise with the Patriots and stayed in touch, Roy said. Brady, unbeknownst to me, said Greg, his college track coach, said Kyle was a glue guy, a guy who made everyone around him better and kept the team together. That's what he was, a glue guy. Roy had seen movies. He had read books. Roy had an idea of what the SEALs were about. Then he heard them talk at Milliken's Memorial, what they did, where they did it, who they did it with. One detailed account especially struck him. An Australian and American school teacher had been captured by the Taliban, Roy said. Kyle led a group to the rescue to rescue those two. They talked about the mission graphically, and I said, my God, I can't believe it. It was so intense. Roy said he and his wife drove back from Virginia Beach after the memorial. It was so impactful to hear what he was all about and the respect he had. I'll tell you, that ride home was pretty quiet. Quiet enough to hear those runners breathing out there on Bone Mill Road. Today's show is dedicated to Senior Chief Petty Officer Kyle Milliken. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there who serve in our military, from the birth of this nation through today and into the future. We dedicate also to all the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or EMS. And we dedicate to them, My Name is America, by Todd Allen Herringdon. God bless each and every Thank you. 
others gave it to me. They believe in the virtues I stand for. I respect for humanity. Now I'm challenged by tyrants. Todd Allen Harrington, My Name is America. And you're back listening here to Southern Century on Blog Talk Radio, SHRON Media, High Plains Daily News, out of uh, Connect High Five, out of Charleston, South Carolina. Oh, that's right. I give up. I just give up. I'm just going to go back to bed. <laughs> you're listening to Southern Sense. I'm your hostess with the most is Annie, the radio chick. And today's guest special co-host is Kel Fritzy. Kel, I forgot how to talk. That's it. I'm going home. <laughs> Let's go outside and play. Ah, the heck with it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, we're waiting for our guests to call in. And, again, they confirmed last night that they would be calling in, so just waiting for him to dial in the number and get through. Uh, we're going to have Doug, Doug Guile. Uh, no, Doug Gibbs. I need to get him to have on his guest. Oh, jeez. Not Doug Guile. Doug Gibbs. Oh, jeez. Anyway, uh, we have a lot to talk about. You know, Cal, have you been watching what's going on on our southern border here with these this caravan that finally came through? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't you have like 300 of them show up over the weekend? Yeah, and guess what they showed up? They didn't show up in Texas or New Mexico or Arizona. They show up in Lefty, California. And that's why yeah. I'm hoping Doug will call in very shortly because uh, I want to ask them about that. And they've actually let some of them cross over. Yeah, and they have attorneys down there in Mexico telling oh, them exactly what to say to how to get across. And uh, one of the news stations had interviewed one of the uh, immigrants, aliens, call them, not immigrants, the aliens, 
uh, illegal yeah. aliens, and he admitted that he was MS-13. So, you know. Sounds like the United he, Kingdom where yeah. that uh, jihadi came into the country, and he said as much, well, I, I fought for Islamic State. Mm-hmm. Oh, no worries. Come on in anyway. Yeah. Oh, man. We're, 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 we're having some very interesting discussion regarding the northern border. It would appear that the RCMP and the Canadian Border uh, Service, uh, Service Agency, uh, they're working together along um, Roxham Road, which is a highly popular um, entry point for the migrants, and we're wondering what is going on with that because Canadian Border Service Agency say they work with processing people crossing at the ports of entry, and the RCMP deal with those entering the country illegally uh, through non-ports of entry. But apparently, they're they're both working together at this uh, Roxham Road, which is not an official port of entry. And so now we're wondering, hmm, what's going on? What's Trudeau doing with this? Because that's never happened before. So uh, it's crazy borders across the entire North America, Annie. That it is, that it is. And I see our guest is up in there. Let me just get this. Mm -hmm. Let's get this on. And if I can, my fingers get work right. Boy, nothing is working right today. (laughs) I swear. Well, welcome aboard, Doug Gibbs. Good afternoon. And it's been quite a while since you've been on the show. Thank you for reaching out and saying you wanted to come back on. How are you today? Well, there's a lot going on here in California. I wanted to talk about it, and I'm doing great. I'm shuffling uh, many things all at once, as always, but uh, it's always a pleasure to uh, spend time with you guys. And it has been a while. Yeah, it has. You know, you've been on my mind because I get your post and check your stuff out every now and then. But, you know, I just mentioned earlier, it's amazing that we have this caravan that came up uh, from Mexico. And it's amazing. They didn't try to cross through Texas. They didn't try New Mexico. They didn't try Arizona. But, of course, (laughs) you've got Governor Moonbeam out there, so they head straight for San Diego. (laughs) Why not? He's going to let them in. Well, yeah. (laughs) Well, the thing is, too, (laughs) is you have to understand that, uh, first of all, uh, and, and by the way, my name is Douglas V. Gibbs for the audience, and I run a, a political blog called Political Pistachio. So you find it at politicalpistachio.com, author, radio host, blah, blah, blah. I've got a bio that's so long that if I was to go through the whole bio, the show would be over. Um, but uh, we've got a governor who's in office, a governor whose father was on the cover with two communists in a, in a magazine, which the Eagle Forum has a, a copy of, if you want to look it up, that you can print it right off of. I have one of the original copies of this. Uh, and, and the name of the um, booklet is the California Communist Dynasty. Now, understand, uh-huh. our governor, who was governor when I was a kid back in the 70s also, uh, so I, <laughs> I swear, like half my life he seems to have been governor, um, his roots are a father that was communist, and he's a Jesuit, uh, which uh, was overtaken by the Marxists long ago. I, so we've got, first of all, a Marxist, in no doubt in my mind, in the governor's mansion. On top of that, uh, the uh, California state legislature, uh, the assembly, and the Senate, and a large number of those people, like Kevin DeLeon, like uh, Assemblyman Lara and a handful and a bunch of others, I shouldn't say a handful, it's a bunch of them, believe in Reconquista. 
which is the concept that California and the American Southwest belongs to Mexico, that it was stolen, and that it is their goal to take it back. So let's frame this real quick, without even getting into constitutional stuff when it comes to immigration. The politicians of Sacramento are siding with people who, are, who desire the overthrow of American sovereignty over the American Southwest. Is that not giving aid and comfort to the enemy? Is that not supporting those who wish to overthrow our government? Is that not treason? Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you notice, a lot of these people coming across are carrying the flags of their native state. You know, Honduras, Ecuador, Mexico. And people trying to come into the United States to be part of America do not carry those flags. They would carry the American flag. Basically saying, hey, I'm waving the American flag because I want part of that American dream and to be American. Instead, they're bringing the flags of their native states and proudly waving them and demanding entry into our nation. That is not an illegal alien. That is an invading army. Well, not only that, but let's, let me back up. I don't know if you remember back in 2014, July the city of Marietta turned around buses full of illegal aliens being shipped into her city. And those buses were turned around by the protesters standing in the middle of the street. 180 illegal aliens every two weeks were being shipped into that town, processed at a center that was designed for 24 persons. And then if they didn't have an address, they were being let off on the side of the, of the road right there in Marietta. Uh, the, uh, how I found out about it was because of the incident of – hand, foot, and mouth disease rising uh, along with when, when those people started being shipped in starting in October and the uh, incidence of hand, mouth, and foot disease rocketed skyward. Um, the reason why I was involved with that is I live in that city. I was one of the original protesters. I was one of the original people standing in front of the Border Patrol. We wound up getting national attention. And I, I as a result of that, I was on Fox News five times. I was on Al Jazeera uh, America three times. I was on One America News. I was on uh, CNN. MSNBC interviewed me. They never aired it because they couldn't corner me. Uh, PBS, you know, interviewed me. I was on PBS and, and on all the local stations. And what I basically told everybody was, this is about our communities. But when I was on Al Jazeera America, their very first question was this. Are you anti-Hispanic or are you anti-immigration? So neither. I love immigrants. My wife's an immigrant. My wife was born in Mexico, immigrated here legally with her parents, and naturalized 2007, and she's more conservative on this issue than I am. Now, normally dead air is not good on the radio or television, but at that moment it was golden. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Everyone seems to assume that we are anti-immigrant. You know, I'm only second-generation American. Out of all of my grandparents, only one was born here in the United States. So I have no qualms about, you know, immigration. My husband is an immigrant. So, you know, when they say that we're anti-immigrant, no. We grew up with people that came here legally with the intent of becoming an American citizen. It was up until the 1960s 
that we had an immigration policy that you had to have a sponsor, you had to have a place to live, a place to work, and the sponsor was legally responsible for you. You had to swear you would not take any government uh, uh, benefits for five years, and you must also swear that you will become an American citizen. And what other nation in the world opens their borders to people and says, oh, come on, come on, of course, and we'll give you free housing, we'll give you welfare, we'll give you free medical care, we'll give you free education. Let's just come on over. we got all these tax dollars we're willing to give you. No other nation in the world does it. We're stupid enough to do that. Well, you know, and it's interesting because uh, you go into Mexico, you go to their southern border, take a look at it. Barbed wire, troops, they'll fire upon you. If you get caught, you're jailed, and then you're deported. Uh, and in that jail, it's not a pleasant stay. You know, that, that that's <laughs> what other countries do. And, and, and we're supposed to, you know, sit here and just allow everybody, and otherwise we're racist. And, and here's the thing, uh, and let me address the racism thing real quick. You know, my wife's Mexican. Well, she, well she, she'll get mad at me for saying that. She'll say she's American, but you know what I mean. Uh, I have North Western European roots, and I am almost a quarter Blackfoot Indian. She has Spain, Spanish, German, and Central American roots. What's the difference? It isn't Spain in Europe? How is it racism? Because the Central American Indian blood is a little darker than the North American Indian blood, or that there's more of it in their blood, and suddenly it's a whole different race? It's not racism, first of all. We're the same. There's there's one race, really, the human race. But if you want to break it down scientifically, biologically, there's three. The Mongoloid, Asian, uh, African, uh, black, and uh, Caucasian. That's it. So really, race has nothing to do with it. It's about the rule of law. And here's – Beaumont was one of the cities where I was a key reason why they flipped uh, and opted out of the sanctuary state. And here's what I told the crowd right out the gate. Um, when you left here, when you left your home this morning, did you lock your door? Did you lock your door? And you didn't lock your door because you think everybody outside are criminals, but you do recognize that that element exists. You lock your doors of your house not because you hate everybody on the outside, but because you love everybody on the inside. You lock your doors because you want to protect what's yours, and you want to make sure your home remains livable and is protected against an element that wants to destroy it or take from you or hurt you. California and the United States, that's our home. That wall, that's the door. I want it knocked on, and I want the people vetted before they come in to raid the refrigerator. It's simple common sense. It really is. And there is no other nation in the world that has an open border like we do. People are telling us, you have to. No, we don't. This is our nation. It's our sovereign nation. Do you tell China that you have to? Do you tell Russia you have to? Look what Australia is doing. They took in some of the refugees and the ones that they rejected for whatever reason, sending them, saying, no, you can't cross in. Oh, by the way, we'll just send these people that we're rejecting to the United States because they have to take them. We let the U.N. dictate who we take. We let the rest of the world dictate when we open our borders and to whom? I, I don't see any other nation doing that. Well, you know, and it's, it's 
it's fascinating. Our prosperity is based on our political system. Now, we're accused of, you know, we have all these resources, and that's the reason. No, it's because of our political system. If you look at history, the most successful countries, most successful empires were republics, republics, and they based their system on uh, a system of virtue, of virtue, and in our case, godliness and, and liberty, individualism. You look at the difference between the American Revolution and the French Revolution. The difference is the French Revolution was based on secularism and collectivism. The American Revolution was individualism and, and godliness. Which one was the successful one? So we have a political system that's successful. Now, during, during, right before the uh, American Revolution, one of the things that put us into revolution was we were prospering economically when uh, under our money. And Britain and Europe didn't like it because they they had homeless in the streets. It wasn't right. So they got rid of the Continental and forced us into their system. Because their system of free market was ha, had been compromised. Ours wasn't. What had happened is we started going into some economic failures. That was one of the reasons behind the American Revolution, in addition to the, fa- the taxation and all that. Uh, you know, and, well, and uh, you know, we, we 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 sit here and we're letting them dictate to us. That's what we fought a revolution over was so that they wouldn't dictate to us. We're, when we say we're an exceptional nation, we're not saying we're we're so much better than everybody. I mean, it turns out we are, but it, it, we are the exception to the rule. That's an exceptional nation. Uh, Doug, is so, somehow your mic got a little muffled there. I don't know if, when you shift a position, it it shifted with you. My my, my wife came in uh, came in the office. Uh, sounds like, and that may might have coincided. Uh, but I was just saying that we're <laughs> the whole point of the revolution was the fact that they were trying to monkey with our economic system. Of course, the first shots were fired because they tried to take our guns. Um, some cannons and so forth. But, um, you know, we're, we're fighting the same fight we were 250 years ago. They're trying to interfere well, with our system that works. Well, I, what we have here is we've got we have the rule of law, and we also have it where we, the people, are in control. You know, the republic versus a democracy, democracy being mob rule, essentially. So by forcing these people on us, they are changing the system from a republic to the mob rule of a democracy where we will then digress into socialism and communism, which is what the point is of the whole thing. You know, if we allow mob rule to prevail, then we lost. It's a continuation of a process that's been going on. I mean, they've been trying to take us down for a long time. Nothing new. Nothing new. They've been trying to take us down for a long time. I'm sorry? I said it was just another method of doing that. Right. By forcing them. They're also doing this with the uh, popular vote. They're arguing with these uh, uh, compacts between the states that are now being passed. They're trying to overrule the Electoral College and using this popular vote idea. And from what I understand, if they have seven more states sign on to this, goodbye to the power of the Electoral College, because now these compacts will dictate whatever the popular rule is, that state will go with the popular vote. Yeah, now, so now, real quick, uh, uh, 
let, let's educate your audience a little bit. What's the difference between republic and democracy? What's the, what do you think the difference is? Well, the, the republic is where we have the voice in voting, where we use the electoral college, and we're also by the rule of law. Whereas in a democracy, whatever the populace wants is then the law. So if they decide that everyone should have chocolate on Fridays and no vanilla, that's that's the democracy. That's the mob rule. Whereas we say, no, we have a set of laws that everyone must abide equally. So you can't have a mob rule. Okay. In a democracy, everything is decided by the vote. Everything. Your vote, you know, your laws, everything. Okay? Now, sometimes democracies will have represent, re- representatives, representative democracy, which we are not, based on the popular vote. Now, as the old saying goes, you know, uh, a democracy is two wolves and a sheep voting on what to have for dinner. Now, that all said, and, and I apologize. I'm actually doing two things at once. That's the reason why I kind of I sound like I'm kind of half half pausing. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll resolve that in just a moment. But uh, in a republic, there are checks and balances that are in place that keep mob from having full control. In other words, there's mechanisms that guard against total control by the mob, and that includes, Which is our but it's not limited to. Well, that's a part of it. It also includes other constituencies, such as in our system, originally, the states and the counties, who are there to offset. See, you know about the 17th Amendment, right? You're familiar with that? 17th Amendment changed. 17th Amendment changed how our Senate. Yeah, changed how our Senate is populated. So, basically, uh, what that means is that uh, rather than the states appointing the senators, it changed over to them being popularly voted. They were not popularly voted before because it was a guard against pure democracy. The House is popularly voted. Now, what that did was that allowed the states to be a constituency. Okay, now it's going to get a little less uh, funny because I'm sitting in the vehicle. I'm actually getting ready to go somewhere, too. Um, and so the states had the voice. The, the Senate belonged to them. The Senate made decisions based on what was best for the state and what, and what the legislature would approve of. They didn't care about trying to keep a populace, a constituency happy by giving them gifts because that's not who they were trying to keep happy. They're trying to keep the legislature happy. And the legislature, regardless of ideology, wants what's best for their state. So it creates in the bicameral Congress a natural... Uh, uh, check and balance between the people and the states. Now, in, in your state government, it was the same. It was the Warren Court that finished off changing it. In the states, all the states had bicameral congresses or, or assemblies, legislatures, and, and there's two houses, the assembly or the, or the house or the people, and then the state senate. The state senate was chosen by the counties, county leadership, and the lines were not based on... Po- we're not based on population numbers and then split up so they're all even. It was based on the county, regardless of the population. 
What this does, same thing it does in the U.S. Senate, is it gives the, the states or the counties with the lower populations as much voice in that one house as the ones with lots of population. The reason why is because the founding fathers realized the reason why democracy always commits suicide, as John Adams said, or as James Madison said, democracies are short in their lives and violent in their deaths, is because tyranny always rises from the mob, and the mob always exists in the heavy populated areas. Therefore, the way to keep this republic going and protected to have a check against that mob in the populated centers by giving the rural areas a larger voice. That is a republic. Well, now now there is an attempt with the popular vote, vote movement, and uh, we got a friend of ours, Bobby Lawrence, out of uh, Pennsylvania that's been fighting this, and he came across it when he was running for office, and he started uh, Protect Your Vote, a website, uh, it's also up on Facebook where he, we've been able to stop it here in South Carolina. But as I said, they just right. need seven more states, and then they can overrule what the rural area does. And then forever, the vote, whoever's the next president, will be determined by the, those urban centers. New York, L.A., San Francisco, uh, Boston, D.C., they will then control whoever becomes the next president, and that will always go to a liberal de- Democrat at that point from now on. So you now, not only well, do we have an invasion there on the southern border, you've got mm-hmm. within your state a major uprising. Um, matter of fact, I wanted to ask you, because uh, I'm looking at the clock, because I know that you only have a few more minutes with us. Um, you have a Golden State Coalition where you're trying to turn California back into a um, red state. How's that going? Right. Well, actually, we were out at the Vietnamese uh, memorial, really, I shouldn't say celebration. Uh, April 30th is Black April Day. It's uh, end of country day. That's the day that Saigon fell in 1975. And every year they have an event regarding that. Uh, This year it actually, uh, they did it on Sunday, the 29th. And uh, we were a part of that because one of the one of the populations we're trying to reach out to are the Vietnamese, the free Vietnamese here. There's 750,000 of them in here in California. And uh, the idea, though, with the Golden State Coalition is this. I'm actually media director. Uh, is one of the biggest problems with the Republicans in the state is because of the control of media and the control of everything else, the, the message of Republican candidates don't get out. All the voter sees is Republican. They, they assume that automatically means he's a racist, bigot, you know, you know the list of things he'll be called, and therefore he shouldn't be voted for. But the message of conservatism actually does well when the voters hear it. Prop 8, which, which uh, characterized the marriages between a man and a woman, actually won in this state. We have a very conservative state who votes Democrat because they believe the propaganda. So how do you get the message out? What you do is get the candidates together to pull the resources together and do it as a group. And then as a group, we affect these different communities best we can. And we, it's a larger footprint, and we're getting a lot more recognition. We're, we've gotten a lot of television time on Chinese TV, Korean TV, uh, uh, a, a black Christian station, uh, the way of the cross, uh, or way of the cross, I'm sorry, 
uh, Vietnamese TV, Viet News, which is the largest Vietnamese channel in the world, uh, because of this effort. And uh, now, I'm a firm believer that in California, we may, we may even be able to start flipping some of these seats, uh, not just at the federal level. I mean, uh, Maxine Waters actually has quite a quite a task ahead of her to beat uh, the guy that the, the people who are up against her but a lot of these uh, seats up in sacramento where we had a super majority of democrats for a while or reason why we don't anymore is they kept having to resign because of sexual allegations uh <laughs> three democrats gone because of sexual harassment allegations and it knocked knocked them from a super majority to just a majority um and we're looking at these state cities that are opting out of sanctuary states in California, we now have over two dozen cities that have done it, and there's another dozen and a half cities in the next two weeks that have it on their agenda for their city council meeting. And I'm at a lot of those city council meetings. I am. I wrote an ordinance that presents that presents information to these cities uh, so that they have that fuel for for their fire to opt out. We are seeing in California even the even Democrats saying, "Okay, enough is enough," because the Democrats have overplayed their hand. And people are noticing. Well, I'm going to have to get in touch with you and get some of these uh, these candidates on. Because uh, I know a while back, Travis Allen had posted up a YouTube video. And my mm-hmm. ex-in-laws lived in, Seal, lived, in, or lived in Seal Beach. I don't know where they are now. So I was very familiar with the Long Beach, Seal Beach area. And he drove around in his car and the homelessness. And the destitution that was out in a once beautiful, prosperous, and booming area just broke my heart. Uh, people don't realize how much it is going on in the liberal state of California, the homelessness, the rise of it. And here we are experiencing under President Trump so much good, a rise in the economy, a decrease in unemployment. Everything's going great, but yet California just can't seem to get it together. And that video alone would make anyone vote for this man. Yeah, Travis Allen is definitely the guy I'm supporting, and I've met with him nine times. He's supposed to be on my radio show uh, soon. Problem is my program is on Saturdays, and his Saturdays are always full. So we're working it out with his team that he's going to come in during the week sometime and pre-record with me. I've gotten to know him quite well, looked him in the eye, and, uh, you you know, we've talked about all these issues and I am a firm believer, no doubt in my mind, that he is as conservative through and through as they get. Uh, you know, otherwise we have Gavin Newsom or Tony Villaraigosa or, or Chang, and uh, these guys are a disaster. They're worse than Brown. At least Brown has enough sense to veto a handful of these nutty, crazy bills. Uh, but Gavin Newsom would not only be signing everyone. Let's say right now they actually have a bill that there's being pushed right now. Uh, 2943, I believe is the number, uh, which would uh, outlaw any aversion therapy in in, the, in California. Uh, in other words, if someone yeah. says, you know, I don't want to be homosexual anymore, they're not allowed. Churches not allowed to even have that. And all materials, books, or or anything associated with that will be illegal. Well, if all materials, books, and yep. all that uh, associated with that is illegal, guess what? They just made the Bible illegal. In California, if they yeah, have. we would, we've been, we've been discussing that here. On we had Amanda Head, the Hollywood conservative, on. We had Maria Espinoza. Uh, she's got um, the Remembrance Project. 
uh, you know, we've discussing all of that with that with going on in California. It's gotten absolutely crazy. You know, certain well, things well, well, also. Um, they, they think that they think nothing can stand in their way, so they're willing to do anything. Uh, even Anything. with the sex ed, you can talk about about sexually transmitted diseases, but you cannot talk about you know the sex changed. Uh, oh, good lord! My mind just went into a major brain fart. You know, even even to educating kids in kindergarten about transgender. Well, actually, right now there's know, a bill they're pushing. There's a bill they're pushing in Sacramento. The Democrats pushing right now is sex education for preschoolers and a mandatory uh, state preschool. And then sex education at the preschool level. There are they're push right now. There is a bill right now out there. Uh, Dr. Pan, P-A-N, he's one of the nuttiest ones, and he's he had an, a rights of the child bill uh, that he put out. He you know he, he's you know been behind a lot of this stuff too. Uh, you know it's incredible. I mean my my grandkids are in the public school system, and there's been a handful of times where I felt like you know we we had to reprogram them or something because they're being told such garbage. My son went off on them one time when he start bringing up, you know, our son went off on our grandson one time when he brought up the transgender issue that, you know, his teacher talked about. You know, my son's like, where did you hear that? You know, and poor kid, you know, he wanted to crawl in the corner. But, um, you know, this that's the kind of stuff that they're pushing here. Uh, Common Core is out of control. I actually have a textbook I'm getting ready to put out in the next month or two that I've got 60 uh, homeschool kids and two private schools interested in it. So, you know, I'm trying to get to the younger generation. I'm wanting to start an after-school program in the public schools using that textbook so we can start injecting this information. I'm a part of an organization that will get Constitution classes in inner-city neighborhoods. If we can just get the truth to these people, you change everything. Yeah, it's amazing because now I understand there's another bill out there that just came up uh, where they want to inspect home schools. They want to send in the farm. Yeah, now, that, now that to begin one with. just and failed. It, it, it just yeah. failed in committee. That one just bombed. Uh, uh, it just failed uh, like just a few days ago. But yeah, and the reason why is there was 13 uh, kids abused in a city of Paris, which is right up the road from where I live, and they blamed the homeschooling, not the parents, for being dirtbags. And so it was there. But they've been waiting for something like that. They, they've been wanting to get rid of homeschool. Now you know who outlawed homeschool? Hitler. Amazing, and it's all from the same playbook. Playbook. It was the very first yeah. time I saw the Antifa protests. I looked at my husband. And I said, "That's that's Kristallnacht. That is. Those are the brown shirts. The SS brown right. shirts." Right. Uh, and you know what happened to the brown it, shirts the after the Nazis effect. got control, right? They killed them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and you know, at the last and, Travis Allen events I went to, I we had to work our way through the Antifa. They were blocking the entrances. They were in the steps, a whole bit. Uh, it's crazy. It is absolutely crazy. And, but fortunately, mainstream America is waking up and saying, hey, wait a minute, there is a problem. And with the craziness that's going on in California, the rest of the nation is talking about it. So you're seeing well, and what you have and, the and what in there. Now, here's, here's our thinking with the Golden State Coalition. If we can get California heading in the right direction, what does that tell the rest of the states? If the impossibility of but, moving, turning around California starts happening, it can be done anywhere. Exactly, exactly. Now, are you working outside of the Republican Party with this Golden State Coalition? Are you working parallel with them? Because one of the problems we have here is sometimes we can come up with a good candidate to challenge a liberal, and yet we can't get the party backing. 
Yeah, we're having to work outside the party. Party's not willing to work with us. This is a and, and, and partly because that we push with this coalition is Christianity. These are Christian candidates called by God to run, and you know that drives the establishment nuts. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, you've got some excellent websites out there. People can, and I have the links on the show page, so when people listen to the podcast, they can just look at the description and click on them. One of them is just simply your name, douglasvgibbs.com, as well as the political pistachio. Try to say that three times fast. Political pistachio at blogspot.com. And uh, I'll only mention my latest book. I want to make mention of my latest book, Seven Worst Constitutional Liars. These are not just constitutional enemies. Trust me, there's a Congress full of constitutional enemies. According to Trevor Loudon, there's 100 in the House and 20 in the Senate that couldn't even uh, pass a background check to clean toilets in the building they serve in. Uh, so, you know, we've already, we do have the enemy within. Now, I'm talking about constitutional liars. These are people who uh, claimed to defend the Constitution. But in the end, they really wanted to usurp it. Uh, President Obama was one of them. Claimed to be a constitutional lawyer, constitutional lecturer, constitutional professor, whatever. Uh, read the book; it uh, explains the truth. Uh, there are seven of them, plus a couple of honorable mentions. I do list a few of the enemies. Uh, but basically, what this book is doing tells you the story of how we went from a constitutional republic to a liberal democracy, which we're not supposed to be. Uh, there's a lot of things that have gone wrong, and uh, I'm looking, I'm screaming at the TV when they talk about Trump deciding whether or not to stay in the Iran deal. I'm glad they're not ca- calling it a treaty, but a deal, because it never <laughs> went before the Senate, which makes it completely right. unconstitutional. So what part of staying right. in it do you need to know? If it's unconstitutional, withdraw. The Paris exactly. Peace Accord, same thing. If it's unconstitutional, withdraw. That's why I'm glad I have you on, because so much of this stuff is happening right here, right now, and things that Obama had done as president that simply were blatantly unconstitutional, so there's no question. Don't worry about DACA. It's unconstitutional. Withdraw. Well, they're under right? – the, the left is – well, what the left does is they say if we change the name of something, it has different rules. So if we don't call it a treaty, we call it an agreement. It has different rules. Therefore, it doesn't have to be ratified. If we call a budget bill an omnibus, it has different rules. The president can spend it as he please. Uh, you know, if we call it, you know, this, we call it that. You know, it changes the rules. We don't have to worry about the rules. Uh, and that's absolute poppycock. To use a word that shows my age. Um, and uh, <laughs> you know, the the reality is, the reality is. The name isn't what makes it what it is. What it is makes it what it is. If it's an agreement with another country, it's a treaty, period. And it requires the Senate to ratify it. And the reason why is because the states are the final arbiters of the Constitution. Originally, the Senate was the voice of the states. So, in other words, the states had to be good with it, too. That was the whole purpose of that. Of course, you know, it, what well, you notice, though, was our cost. Well, go ahead. But we have a friend of, of the we have a friend of the show here, one of my former co-hosts in the line. He just raised his hand with the question. So, cool, Mike, go ahead. Hey, good afternoon. Um, I have actually three three questions. Um, then I'll mute myself. Number one is uh, earlier in the program you had mentioned uh, um, a book, a constitutional book, and uh, you're trying to get to homeschoolers and uh, inner city kids. I, I work. Uh, I work in the inner city. I'm running for school board again. Um, 
Uh, when is that book coming out? That's the first question. The second question is, um, why is it so many Republicans that we elect, even statewide, are, are so hesitant about pushing a, uh, I mean, an education, whether it's a, a, uh, away from the indoctrination uh, education, whether it's homeschool or charter school, et cetera, why are so many Republicans fighting us? Um, third, status with New California. I know they were making a move, um, and uh, I have not heard anything about that for a while. I'll uh, mute myself. Okay. Uh, if I remember the questions properly, the first one about the book, it's called A Promise of American Liberty. And it should be out in the next month or two. It is an actual textbook that uh, I've put together. I've been working on it for a couple of years. Uh, the other books I've written uh, at the same time have been while I've been taking breaks from that project, uh, and uh, it should be out within the next month or two. Uh, a, a Promise of American Liberty, and once uh, it comes out, I'll have it on DouglasVGibbs.com and PoliticalPistachio.com. I'll advertise it, and of course, it'll be available at Amazon. Uh, what was the second one again, real quick? Second question. It was uh, uh, education. The, oh yeah, the, the Republicans in education, right? The reason why they like to stand in the way is because it's 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 a money game. They, I have a friend of mine who is who just became a Republican. The reason why he left the Democrat Party is when he asked them why don't we solve the problems that we uh, campaign about. The, the response was because if those problems go away, we've got no federal funding coming in, and what will we and what would we run for in elections? They want the problems to continue. They don't want a solution. That's where the money comes from. That's where their position comes from. And what was the last question? Oh, New California. New, New California. <laughs> yeah. Okay. New California was to split the state into two, which I thought was wouldn't be a bad idea. Uh, but the thing is, Article 4 requires that the legislatures of any states involved, in this case only California, would have to also approve it and that the Congress would have to approve it. Well, I, I, I could, could see a Republican Congress approving such a move. I couldn't see – state legislature uh, approving such a move, so it's not going to happen. Now, that said, another one where it would split California into three states has actually got earned enough signatures to be on the ballot. In November, California voters will be voting on whether or not to split the state into three states. What it would do, though, the problem with that one is it would create two liberal states and one conservative state. It would actually be good for the left. They would wind up with more senators than before, uh, you know, Two additional, basically, because the the two and the two from the other two would cancel each other out, essentially. Um, but once again, it would require also approval of the Congress and the state legislature, and I just don't see that happening. I'm not I'm not sure why it is we often say, well, this would hurt the Republicans. What have the Republicans done? I mean, I, as a conservative, the Republicans are worse than the Democrats. We don't know what we're seeing with the GOP. With the Democrats, we know what to expect and what to fight. With the Republicans, right. I mean, I mean, somebody going to tell me Mitch McConnell is a conservative? Paul Ryan? Uh, John McCain? Right. Well, unfortunately, the, the only conservatives we really have is the Freedom Caucus. Yeah, that's very yeah. true. Uh, incidentally, Annie, I saw an interview a few <laughs> a few hours ago. I couldn't stop laughing where uh, they were interviewing Lindsey Graham, and he says, "Yeah," he says. Some people from my state nicknamed me Gramnesty. <laughs> I started laughing. It made me think of you. He's probably proud of it. Yeah, and look at, just to get, 
just to get uh, the new uh, chief justice, I forgot his name, but just to get him approved, look how the president had to pull teeth with the Senate. I mean, we're talking Republicans. I mean, this now, uh, Mike, Mike, earlier you asked me about the book, the textbook I'm writing. Something that yes. could hold you over. Or, uh, something that could hold you over. I do teach uh, constitution classes to adults twice a week, and uh, the, those uh, those uh, handouts that I use for those classes, I put together in a book form in a book called The Basic Constitution. So if you look me up, Douglas of V. Gibbs over at Amazon, and The Basic Constitution is the book of my handouts for the adult classes. Now this textbook's gonna go deeper. It's gonna have lessons that you know, you know. Uh, uh, questions and essays at the end of each chapter, all that jazz. It goes a lot deeper into the Constitution. But the basic Constitution and my book, 25 Myths of the Constitution, are great starter books if you want to start learning about the U.S. Constitution. And we're, we're, the city I live in, um, it, it is, uh, they've basically segregated the schools, and 73% of our third graders are illiterate. Of course, we all know what those uh, 73% look like. My point is I think if I can get to them at least a handful and get them involved in athletics and teach them the truth of the Constitution, I think they could be great allies against the indoctrination. Um, you know, there, there are great success stories of people that uh, rise from the inner city and do very well, but it's few and far between because, as we know, um, political parties need pouring, class, uh, pouring coffee uh, generations. And... Uh, in our city, it's it's in the south end of the town. That's where all the crime is. That's where all the just all the trouble is. Where you have 73% illiteracy. They can't read. They can't write. They're all black or Latinos. And on the north end of town, of course, if the roles were reversed, the city would never stand for it. And my hope well, is, he, I, my well, hope that's is something I'm working on. A good book, which is uh, or a good education plan which can instill the Constitution uh, at a young age, can really, I, right. I, I would hope, I mean, that's the pipe dream. Well, well, I'm trying to write this in such a way that it is comprehensible uh, to uh, these populations. Now, I, I have a friend of mine, uh, he's a conservative Republican, and he is the vice president of the local chapter of the NAACP. Uh, yeah, take a moment to think about that for, you know, <laughs> Uh, and he hosted a community forum last November, and he asked me to be on the panel. And, and one of the questions was about, what do you think about Black Lives Matter and the NFL players kneeling? And I said this. In the black community, in homes where there is a single parent, normally the mom, it is 37%. In the black community, in families where both parents are home, the poverty rate is 8%. In, in the black community where both parents are home and both parents work, the poverty rate is 5%. Your problem isn't racism. Your problem is dad's not in the home. When I said that, the room exploded. I was a racist. I was a bigot. Da -da 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 -da. Luckily, there were uh, uh, armed police in the room, and, uh, and I had the police, the police chief sitting next to me. But that, and then at another time, I was asked about the protest of Black Lives Matter again by somebody else. I said, yeah, but you didn't say what you really mean, you know, or what you really feel. And I said, hey, you know, First Amendment gives you the right, you know, or doesn't give you the right. It's a God-given right, but it enumerates the right to peaceably assemble. So I have no problem. Protest all you want, but keep it peaceful. 
And a, and a gentleman in the back says, I ain't going to have no white person telling me how I'm allowed to protest. In other words, he was condoning the violence because that's their way, and no white person should be able to tell them not to be violent. So we have a very, a, a, a very interesting thing going on in the black community. They have bought into the Marxist ideas. They've bought into a lot of this garbage. It just isn't true. So I'm trying to word this book in such a way that it isn't about party. It isn't about ideology. It's about basic common sense and the rule of law. And uh, and I'm also making it very heavy on the biblical end because one of the things that we have in common with these communities is our value system. We go to church. And so I'm using that value system as a way to kind of get in through the door. I was originally working with Niger Ennis and, a, and another uh, a black pa- and a black pastor up in Northern California. Those relationships have since dissolved, but uh, uh, we're still working on trying to get this going and get this out there. Uh, and it's, it's been an incredible journey, and, it's, and there's a lot of obstacles in the way. Uh, when we had a press conference last October where 50 people showed up, none of the press would show up because it was, quote, unquote, too controversial and not in line with the values of California. The values of California, boy, that's a modest claim. Yeah, yeah well, that's, 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 that was their exact words. We are We are anti-abortion, and we are... Uh, let's see, anti-abortion and anti-gay, therefore, we don't follow the values of California. Well, Doug, I know that you got to run. Uh, I want to thank you for joining us. And we'll, I'll be in contact with you and see if we can get some of these Golden, uh, Golden State Coalition uh, candidates onto the show. And uh, we'll have you back soon. So as soon as your book is out, send me a copy and we'll get you on and we'll do another interview with you. People can oh, find you at your website, which is Douglas V. Gibbs.com. They can also catch your radio show there, your your blog there. They can see everything that you're into right on that one website. Right. I'll I appreciate you having right. me on. Yeah, well, yeah, well I tell you what, uh, you, sir. Yeah, re- re- real quick, if you guys want to email me, constitutionspeaker at yahoo.com. Constitutionspeaker at yahoo.com. You're very welcome. Well, thank, and, thank yeah, you, Doug. God bless. My pleasure. That's All a right, rock Doug Gibbs, right check there, out his Andy. website. Damn, where do you All find right. these well, people? Well, we got Annie? our next. <laughs> oh well, we got our next guest in on the line. Let me just bring him in up here, and I want to welcome Daniel Greenfield back onto the show, known as the Sultan Nish. How are you doing, Daniel? I'm good. How are you doing? Oh, it is a pleasure. And I do have to apologize. When I saw you up in Myrtle Beach back in January, I was running around like a chicken with my head cut off. So I barely waved at you when I passed you. So forgive me. It gets a little hectic when I'm up there. It's hectic around. You know, we've got a lot going on. We're in a tough fight for our country. I barely have time to breathe myself. Oh, it's a lot of crazy stuff going on. Like we had uh, Mr. Gibbs on, and uh, he's right smack in the heart of everything that's going on in California. He's caught between <laughs> Governor Moonbeam up there on one end, and he's got the immigrants coming in on the other end just below him. Holy moly, is California going insane or what? Holy cow. I just finished wrapping up the coverage of the caravan arrival. It is a completely insane situation. Yeah, and they're actually letting some of them cross over and admitting them yeah. into the United States. I thought Trump was going to say, no, no one comes over. 
Well, the problem is, and this is something that I wrote in my latest article, is we actually are following United Nations law. So uh, back during the LBJ era, they signed on to the UN Refugee Convention, which obligates us to actually let a lot of these people into the country if they apply for political asylum at a border. This is why a wall is very important, but we also have to change the laws. We have to get the UN out of our legal system. Oh, that's a huge amen to that one. You know, we, I had noticed that a lot of these people coming over are carrying flags from their native country. So if you see a massive group of people waving their nation's flag at the border trying to cross over, I wouldn't call them illegal aliens. I would call them an invading army. They are an invading army, and the group that's bringing them in, Pueblo Si Fronteras, the whole message is uh, no borders. It's the whole John Lennon song, Imagine There Are No Borders. They're actually trying to destroy the national sovereignty of the United States. They're not coming here to live. They're coming here to destroy this country. And unfortunately, uh, we're getting hit by all different sides and all different angles. You know, we're having them coming across the border and being admitted, and then they just disappear into the country. And they're promoting communism, and we're letting this happen. We're, we're allowing them to destroy it. And then we have a Congress that does nothing. We have a UN that gets involved in our politics. And we, the people, are being shuffled aside. We're being treated as third-class citizens instead of loyal American citizens. Yeah, we are, and they're diluting the voting rights of the people who are actually in this country. Uh, they're building entire districts which are ballooned out by these illegal migrants, by these illegal aliens, um, and they're creating this kind of phantom electorate that they can then use. This is why they're so angry about the census actually asking about citizenship, uh, because they've built an entire shadow government based on people who are not Americans, who are not citizens, who have no right to even be here. Well, what's worse is now... California is issuing these IDs that they say, oh, they can vote if they present the IDs, you know, but we're telling them that they shouldn't vote. Really? Yeah, we can trust. So, and we, we can trust the Democrats on voter fraud. <laughs> if there's any party we can absolutely trust on voter fraud, it's the Democrats because they're so good at it. <laughs> well, I want to shift over because when I was doing my notes last night, I came across one of your articles uh, that it really um, had me almost in tears, where you wrote the article, Who Can Count the Dust of Jacob? And, you know, Israel is our strongest a ally. And I've said this before, we, we don't tell any other nation in the world where they can have their capital. So we have the world telling Israel, you cannot have the capital in Jerusalem. We don't say that to the Russians, you can't use Moscow. We don't say that to China, you can't use Beijing. But we say this to Israel, and now people within Israel are starting to listen to the, the, the propaganda, and they're forgetting about the dust of Jacob. Can you explain what I'm, what I'm talking about? Because, like I said, it's a fantastic article. It's a very disgusting situation, and it shows just how much we give in to the pressure of Islamic states, Islamic terrorists, and we dictate to Israel um, where they can have their capital, for example, um, when somebody is born in Jerusalem, they have no country on United States paperwork. Officially, they're just um, people without a country because we still don't recognize the fact that um, Jerusalem is Israel, even though it's in the Bible, it's in the founding beliefs of the people who made this country. Um, instead, we insist that maybe you no know, part of it belongs to the PLO, Marxist, Islamic terrorists. And when we do that, uh, we just don't just concede what's going on over there. We concede it over here because if we 
can't actually stand up for the truth anywhere, we're not going to stand up for it here either. Uh, It's so frustrating because, you know, my grandfather came from Italy. I grew up half Italian, Roman Catholic, but he taught me a love for Israel where I was listening to people all around me shouting it down. And this was in the 60s and 70s with the rise of the PLO uh, at the height of their power. Um, I remember watching uh, the news with the raid of Antibi. And people were talking about that last night uh, on some of the shows. For some reason, it's it's so easy to propagate anti-Semitism than rather support Israel. And I I, I thought with the end of World War II, anti-Semitism would die down, but instead it's been ramped up so badly, uh, and we allow it to happen. It gets me angry. It gets me very, very angry. And when you see people within the Jewish community supporting the anti-Semitism movement, boycotting Israel, uh, supporting the state of Palestine when Palestine never had a state, I, I just wonder what people are really thinking. What is going on in their head? There's hatred, there's self-destruction. You mentioned World War II. People don't actually learn anything from history. Um, we appeased Hitler, we appeased Stalin, and then we were very surprised when it backfired very badly. Uh, these days we're appeasing other things. We're appeasing Iran, we're appeasing Islamic terrorists, uh, we're appeasing anybody who hates us. Uh, the more that another dictator in another country hates us, the more we appease them and we sell out our friends, we sell out our allies, uh, what's happening to Israel at least before the Trump administration was exactly what was happening to Czechoslovakia before the war. We insisted that Czechoslovakia had to make a deal with Hitler, that it had to turn over territory to him, until, of course, they were just uh, carved up piece by piece. The same thing has been happening to Israel. They've carved major chunks of Israel as enclaves for terrorists, and unsurprisingly, it just made terrorism worse. It made it worse in Israel. It made it worse around the world. The car attacks that we began seeing in the United States Uh, Before that, we were seeing them in Europe, and, you know, before that, we were seeing them in Israel, because Israel is the canary in the coal mine. The terrorists deploy their methods there, they test them out, and then they move them to Europe, and they move them to America. It's all connected. And people don't see the connection. You know, you had mentioned Iran, and under Obama, or as I call him, Obozo, uh, he put together this Iran deal. And now people are asking, well, within the next 11 days, Trump has to decide whether or not to remain in the Iran deal. And from day one, it never was treated as a treaty, which, in fact, that is what it is. Never went before the Senate for ratification. So why should we stay in it? And then I'm hearing, well, you should stay in it because if you come, if you break the treaty, then Iran is then free to make the nukes. Well, they're making them anyway. But they don't see the connection between Pakistan, Iran, North Korea, Cuba, Venezuela, uh, uh, Colombia, this nexus of evil. And yet they're telling us, no, you've got to stay in it. You know, the moment that President Trump actually began pressuring North Korea um, and Iran, then suddenly there were changes. North Korea has now been starting to bend over backward. I don't trust them. Uh, but it shows you that actually pressuring them instead of appeasing them works. 
Um, the Obama administration appeased Iran, and the result was not just that Iran um, began bulking up its nuclear program. We now know there's a shadow nuclear program that Iran lied about, that the whole agreement has been worthless. Um, but beyond that, it's been pushing around into Yemen, into Lebanon, into Syria, and other places, and the result is we're being drawn into a war that, again, would not have happened if Obama just held the line. And this is what happens. They appease terrorists, they appease tyrants, they appease monsters, they appease anybody who hates America, they shove cash at them. Um, Obama illegally flew in uh, a fortune in uh, foreign currency. He used foreign currency to avoid um, United States law because we couldn't ship United States currency there, so he got foreign currency. He shipped pallets of it on unmarked cargo planes directly to the terrorists. And, you know, unsurprisingly, they used the money for terrorism. You know, normally, so if you did that or I did that, we'd be in jail for money laundering. But no, he walks away with that. Uh, but where I was trying to make also the connection between North Korea, Pakistan, and Iran, because if you remember back a number of years, I believe it was under Clinton, when that uh, uh, scientist Khan openly admitted that he was working with Iran and North Korea in developing nuclear weapons. So the nexus of evil does exist. And, oh, shall we forget that it was Clinton that set the te- sent the technology and the computers over to North Korea that they used to advance their nuclear program? That's absolutely correct. And, you know, before the Iran deal, Bill Clinton got up there. He announced that, fine, we completely solved the North Korean nuclear program. Um, it was basically almost the same exact words that Obama would later use for the Iran deal. And, of course, it was all a hoax. It was all a lie. And, yes, as you mentioned, you have the Khan smuggling network. Um, they were, their nuclear programs were always entangled. And that's the other problem. Once you have one of these countries going nuclear, they're not just going to um, sit with the technology. They're going to sell it. They're going to pass it along. And they're going to pass it along to terrorists. And at some point, you know, there's going to be a nuclear bomb going off in an American city. You know, everyone was saying, oh, North Korea, they're not going to have, you know, they're not going to advance their nuclear program, not going to do that, not going to do that. There was a little-known article back in October of last year about a mountain that the tunnel in there had collapsed and several other areas collapsed, and over 200 workers were trapped and killed inside there. And I talked about it on the show, and I said that it was a little two-paragraph thing buried in the back of the newspaper. And lo and behold, no one else wanted to talk about it. Now, Netanyahu yesterday publicly turned around and talked about that very disaster in that mountain. So what makes us think that North Korea is, as you say, (laughs) going to actually really uh, tamp down their nuclear program? They're going to sign a treaty, but we're going to have to have some mechanism in place to make sure. Do you think that we'll be able to do something like that? The question is if we're actually going to have real inspections. So, for example, they've been talking about the most robust inspection regime in Iran. At no point in time did we inspect a single Iranian nuclear facility in all this time. So all of it was a lie. Um, If we actually have access to North Korean nuclear facilities, if we can actually go where we need to go, where we want to go, then it might be worth something. If this is going to be another case like the Iran deal where um, you're going to have politicians talking it up, meanwhile there will be no actual inspections, uh, no meaningful accomplishments, um, then it's going to be a hoax. Now, from North Korea's perspective, they're afraid of Trump. They want to play for time. So it's conceivable that they might even shut down their program temporarily to avoid a conflict with Trump and wait for three, um, eight years, wait for a Democrat to come into power, and then the circus would be back in town. That's obviously a major factor there. 
But the reality is um, this is major progress as far as actually getting some results on the ground. If we can actually get to the point where um, their program is shut down, much of the components are turned over, where the materials are turned over, um, we can actually have something. Well, here is something I had asked a previous guest. You know, will China be able to control North Korea and see a reunification of the Korean Peninsula? Uh, if they do that, I think the main reason why they would help this situation is because they wanted the economic prosperity of South Korea. The same way they've done it for Hong Kong and Shanghai, they want to be able to have that economic power. So. If that does occur, do you think China would then be able to control North Korea's nuclear ambition? Well, China finds it useful to have North Korea around because they're like this crazy dog that they have, and they can occasionally stick them on the United States. Occasionally they can rein them in, and they can act as the broker. They can tell the United States, um, if you make some concessions to us, we can control North Korea. Otherwise, we're just going to go crazy. Um, this is the game they've been playing for a while. The extent to which China can control North Korea is another question, and I'm not entirely sure of the answer there, because we really don't know very much about what goes on in North Korea and who's really running things inside the country. Um, North Korea's elite actually live very well. They have everything smuggled into them. Um, they live like kings, and they live on top of a slave class of people who have absolutely no rights in some cases are starving to death. And some ca you would think that they would actually benefit from changing that. Vietnam, China, obviously, have very much benefited from changing it. But the question is what the people who actually run the country want. If they really wanted to open up the country, they could have done it quite a while ago. Uh, South Koreans are very eager for investments. So it might not serve their interests. It might not serve China's interests. China might find it very useful to have this kind of uh, rabid dog whom they can actually control and manipulate the United States that way. Well, I'm also wondering is if China does support reunification of North and South, it would give them more of a foothold and push us out of the region, I think. They're already building these uh, artificial islands and putting bases on them, and we're not doing anything. So I think if they were to do that, they could say, all right, fine, we've got the situation over here. We don't need American bases in South Korea. Bye. So the plus side would, in theory, um, be the ability to push the United States out. But on the other hand, if South Korea and North Korea were actually to somehow reunify, that would actually marginalize China because there would be um, an even bigger industrial superpower that is not bigger than them, obviously, but much bigger than South Korea that they would have to cope with. So in theory, the United States could make that kind of a trade-off. You won't have these tens of thousands of American soldiers sitting nearby if you actually make this deal. Um, Trump could conceivably sell it, but in the long game, I think China finds it useful um, to perpetuate the conflict. If that changes, then you know we're going to see real change. Well, we'll see whether or not uh, Trump's ability to make a deal uh, closes this deal, because it does give a lot of people hope one step away from a nuclear war. You know, as we said, Kim Jong-un was making a lot of saber rattling over you know, pressing the button. My button's bigger than your button routine. Um, so we'll see what happens. And my prayers are that this comes out with a peaceful solution. But China is the big if in the whole entire equation. 
That's very much the case. It's really going to come down to China. Uh, China is the economic lifeline for North Korea. If China is actually worried enough about a war with the United States on its border, then they might decide it's actually more useful to have to make some sort of a deal, at least temporarily. If it decides they can actually benefit from um, re- rebuilding North Korea along its own model, if it actually decides to do that, uh, then the conflict will pretty much go away, though obviously there will be other conflicts with China itself. But this kind of concentration of U.S. troops in South Korea, this preparation for an invasion, this expectation of a nuclear war, and this has actually caused a great deal of trauma in the region. For example, um, I know a number of Japanese people have just moved out of the country, moved to America, because they expect a nuclear war to happen. So it's created a lot of instability, political, economic, social there. If we can wrap this up, if we can get tens of thousands of Americans out of harm's way, that would be fantastic. But, you know, we have to be prepared for North Korea and China um, to be to deceive us, to fool us, to trick us. Well, that would definitely have to be. I think also China is waiting to see what happens with the Korean Peninsula and whether or not they can finally lay full claim to Taiwan because uh, they still have their eye on Taiwan. They're not happy with the fact that uh, they stay independent of them. Yeah, they absolutely have their eye on Taiwan. Uh, President Trump initially sort of questioned the one-China policy, and China became very upset. That's the thing that upsets China the most. Really, if you question the one-China policy, um, that will make China go ballistic. But China has been making its inroads into Taiwan. It's uh, built uh, financial and industrial infrastructure. Um, It's basically subverted a lot of Taiwan's political class. So on the one hand, you would assume that at some point they would just be able to politically take over Taiwan. On the other hand, it's showing with its behavior in Hong Kong that the whole um, one China, two systems thing cannot be trusted. That's not going to allow democracy or human rights um, to operate under its rule. Yeah, and that's the thing, because now the, the people of Hong Kong that voted to unify uh, with China are now finding that their rights and liberties are being restricted. They want the capitalism, but they are being denied their basic human rights. And that's what they didn't think would happen. And uh, now it's coming to truth. Exactly. The bottom line is you can't actually trust communists. They're always going to revert um, to the baseline. They're always going to revert to a dictatorship. Now, you had another excellent article. Um, We recently had the flap over the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and that was absolutely disgusting. But before that, Sinclair Media, which happens to be a pro-Trump uh, group of uh, media outlets across the nation, it's nationwide, uh, and they had people running these PSAs, public announcements, you know, telling about the station that you won't hear fake news. And the left got into a complete uproar over this ad. And the um, hosts of the different shows were being filmed, you know, promoting Sinclair Media. And they were also getting upset over it. But I looked at it and says, why? Number one, you agreed to be a member of the Sinclair Group. You agreed to be hired by that. So your boss is telling you, you need to make this commercial. So what are you getting upset about? You're being paid for it. You agreed to work there. Otherwise, you can go somewhere else and work. So what is, what is wrong with supporting uh, Sinclair Media if you're employed by it? It's hypocrisy. Um, CNN began, uh, actually previously had run ads touting its own opposition to fake news. You'll get real news from us. You won't get fake news anywhere else. Sinclair was just doing what most of the media was doing, 
which is touting its own um, accuracy, its own honesty, its no fake news thing. Um, the difference, obviously, is that Sinclair is right-leaning, so the media instantly descended on it, howling like deranged wolves, even though Sinclair, again, was doing exactly the same thing that CNN and other organizations had been doing. Um, but they began picking a fight because, to their point of view, um, no conservative media operation should have any rights whatsoever. It's not just Sinclair. They've been going after absolutely everybody. We've had um, editorials arguing that the National Enquirer's defenses of Trump shouldn't entitle the First Amendment rights, which is a very creepy idea. And these same people um, held the White House correspondence, which is supposed to protect the First Amendment. And meanwhile, they're attacking the First Amendment. Um, they've been going after conservative news organizations on Facebook and on Google. Uh, this is a major problem. It's something anybody who works at a conservative site is well aware of, something I'm talking about more and more, because the bottom line is the media is trying to bake its fact checks into uh, sites like Facebook, and that will determine which sites can actually appear there, and conservative sites can be entirely banned because of it. Well, California still is trying to push through this law that if you have a website or a social presence and you're in California, that you're going to have to have something where your your site will not have any fake news. They will put together this committee that will review your website. And if there's anything on there that someone may have posted to you, and you're unaware that someone may have posted this there, because I don't check every single Facebook posting. I once in a while will go through it and I'll start to delete things that I don't want on my site. Uh, but California wants to make this a law. That is crazy. It's a, it's crazy. It's unquestionably a violation of the First Amendment. Uh, but we're dealing with a very bizarre situation now where um, violating the First Amendment is very trendy. Right after the uh, election, they began blaming what they claimed was fake news uh, for Trump's victory. And then they escalated that to the so-called claims about Russian bots. And what both of those things have in common is they define the problem as being free speech and if the problem is free speech, obviously we have to do something about all that speech. So in other words, uh, the media, in order to exercise their First Amendment right of free speech, they have to kill free speech. Yeah, they have to destroy the village to save the village. <laughs> uh, you also wrote on your site about uh, the, the New York Times getting a hold of Mueller's questions for uh, Donald Trump. This this is so bizarre. You know, they had this special prosecutor come through, do the investigation for this alleged collusion, when collusion is never even a, a crime, uh, collusion with Russia. It was all based upon a phony dossier that was put together. The FISA want was based upon corrupt uh, uh, evidence. My question here is, and I've asked this many times and no one is answering it, that original dossier is fruit of the poisonous tree. So anything following it, including the appointment of the special prosecutor, is all fruit of the poisonous tree and should be all canned. Why isn't anyone talking about that? Well, I'm talking about it. A number of people are talking about it, but it is an absolutely insane situation because, again, as you've said, this entire thing originated with a crime that isn't a crime. Um, it originated with opposition research from the Clinton campaign. Uh, now we've got, based on the Mueller questions, um, they're pursuing obstruction of justice charges, yet there's no actual charge around which all this is based, but that's the nature of the investigation. They've been going after people on process charges. For example, they went after Flynn for lying to the FBI. Um, they went after two other people for lying to the FBI, but there's no actual central crime at the heart of this. So they're going after people for lying to the FBI when there's no actual crime 
Yeah, which basically means this is a political campaign. There's no actual criminal uh, thing at the center of it. And this is an attempt really to reverse the results of the previous election. That's what it is. Now, if, if I were to arrest someone and I faked evidence to make this arrest legitimate and I went before a judge with this evidence and this person became convicted, I would then, if it was determined that what I brought forward was uh, uh, forged, forged information, I would be the one sitting behind bars, not the criminal. And this is exactly what they're doing to Donald Trump. They are forging evidence. And they're trying to force a conviction. They're trying to force an impeachment. But everything stems from falsified information, which we called fruit of the poisonous tree. And so from day one, as soon as it was known that this dossier was forged, everything should have been dropped. Everything should have been dropped. um, But the basic problem is that we have a very corrupt system. Uh, The corruption now extends very far and very deep. The Obama administration had eight years to do its damage. Uh, the Clinton administration had eight years before that. The Bush administration really didn't uh, do everything it needed to do to remove some of these people. So this is an actual war. It's a civil war. It's a political war within the government um, between the elected officials, the people who are actually elected to represent the voters, and between the bureaucracy called a shadow government, a deep state, basically, or as I like to call it, a Democrat state, But it's basically a collection of political activists, people who opposed President Trump for political reasons, who um, allied with Clinton's people to go after him using Clinton opposition research, and who are now still trying to do everything they can to destroy him. This is blatantly political. It's a grotesque abuse of power. It involves eavesdropping on political opponents using government resources. Uh, This is banana republic state stuff. This is KGB stuff. And it's absolutely intolerable, yet, you know, Republicans are doing a poor job of talking about it. Yeah, it's it's funny. When you look at everything that was occurring under the Obama administration and then flowed over into the Trump administration, uh, my husband and I were just shaking our head because now they're finally admitting, and Clapper is finally openly admitting that he lied before Congress. I mean, I nearly fell out of my Archie Bunker chair when he was testifying at that time. And he said, no, we are not spying on the American people. When he said that, I I mean, thank God I was sitting in my Archie Bunker chair because I would have just been rolling on the floor in hysterics. But now they're finally admitting that they're lying. Just where is this going to end? Do we see anyone going to prison for this stuff? To actually send them to prison, you need to have a fair and impartial investigation and investigators. And right now, you've got the watchers watching themselves. You've got the people who are responsible for this mess running the investigation. Obviously, that's not going to go anywhere. Uh, Not until there's significant changes to the Justice Department and the FBI. All the Obama holdovers have to go. All the political allies have to go. Everybody who took a work product of the Clinton campaign and turned that into the basis for eavesdropping on a political opponent, everybody who played a role in the unmasking and eavesdropping of uh, Trump associates. Everybody involved with that, everybody who covered up for it, everybody who knew about it, and that includes guys like James Comey, um, who declared, of course, in a recent interview that he um, knew what he wanted to know about the dossier, which was that he did not want to know that it came from the Clinton campaign. And that's a typical example of the people who play the plausible deniability game. Uh, They didn't want to know about the truth about the investigation. Those people have to go. Everybody who colluded with us has to go. And then we can actually have a fair and honest investigation. And I don't know if that's going to happen, but it's what we need to be fighting for. 
Uh, we have a long road to fight because now Comey is doing this book tour. And I swear, every time he opens his mouth, he shoots himself in the foot. And yet we have someone who admitted he leaked information, sensitive government information, uh, to the press. And he used a fellow FBI person to do this. Now, why isn't he being hauled before court? But because we have the FBI, like you said, the fox is in charge of the hen house. Um, I don't see this going anywhere unless he does a major shakeup of Department of Justice. And that would have to start with Jeff Sessions. That would have to go Jeff Sessions firing Rosenstein and then Jeff Sessions resigning. That's the only way I see Trump coming out of this situation. It's a huge disaster, and the bottom line is that as long as the Obama holdovers are in charge, uh, this is just going to get worse, because at this point, um, they're moving to process crimes, they're moving to obstruction of justice, they're moving to get anything and anything at all, and they're betting that they can bring Trump down, which means they can restore the old order. Because remember, these people, once Trump won, uh, these people had gotten their hands dirty. They'd gotten their hands dirty in the targeted campaign against Trump, which means they have to take him out. They now have to protect themselves by bringing Trump down. So beyond everything else, they're heavily invested in this. So unless we see the swamp drained, we're not going to see anything move forward. And if he does do any overt action, such as firing Sessions himself or firing Rosenstein himself, you know, the backlash against the Trump administration will be huge. That's why I think it has to be where Sessions fires Rosenstein and then himself steps down. I, that's the only way I can see it before the, anyone can start to drain the swamp and restructure the FBI and the CIA. And there's only so much time because, again, the midterms are coming up. If the Democrats make significant inroads, it's going to become much harder to do any of these reforms. Well, I got a, chat, a question for you in the chat room. Vito Esposito, who has a great uh, radio show also, is asking, is there any chance that you could work inside the Trump administration? Would you accept a position if one was offered? Well, that's very hypothetical. Nobody's offering me the position. There are some good people in the administration. There are good people outside the administration who are trying to fight the good fight. Um, the larger problem really is the amount of Obama holdovers within the administration. And uh, a great example, you mentioned previously FISA. So um, when you had McMaster replacing Flynn, the result was that McMaster was able to protect a lot of the Obama holdovers, and these were the same people who had covered up and had played a role um, in the unmasking of the names of Trump associates um, during the eavesdropping. So now that Bolton is coming in, uh, we're going to get new people coming in. I don't expect to be one of those people, uh, but I expect there will be good people coming in, and we can actually maybe peel back the curtain on the unmasking request from Susan Rice and Samantha Power. Well, they're always talking about the shadow government, but now we're actually seeing that there is a shadow government within the government, and uh, it's being exposed. People have been talking about it for years, but now we're actually seeing the reality of it. And I think Comey was just the surface. Uh, Comey, Clapper, McCabe, um, and the whole the whole cabal, honestly. And the Pfizer warrant, the Pfizer court has got to go. Because there's anyone, anyone can have a warrant taken out on them for the flimsiest of evidence, as we have seen in the case of uh, Donald Trump. This has been an absolute nightmare scenario. I did not see this coming. I didn't think this could happen in America, but unfortunately, it did happen in America. And we absolutely need to 
first expose exactly what happened and the scale and the scope of it, declassify all the information, um, everything from the investigation, and two, we need to make sure this does not happen again. Um, that we, we have to hope, but we know in the future it will happen again, so we have to put safeguards in there to prevent it from happening. And I, unless we do that, it will continue to reoccur. The one thing I would love to see is if we go department by department throughout the entire government, federal government, and say, this is allowed under the Constitution, this is not, it's closed, it's banned, and start dismantling our federal government and paring it down to what it essentially was supposed to do. And at this point, you know, the federal government's not supposed to tell us what type of light bulbs or toilet seats to use, but that is what that we have come to. It is. It's an insane situation. Um, there's just even a number of things from the Obama administration that need to be rolled back. For example, the attempt to ban antibacterial soap, an attempt to ban a basic ingredient in donuts and other foods. Um, but, yeah, we absolutely need to return to a constitutional government, which means the federal government should not be able to control every micro detail of our lives. But uh, the problem is that in every time a Republican comes into office, they reverse some things, but not nearly enough. So the left ends up getting to keep 80, 90 percent of the things that they do. Uh, we need to change that. We need to change just the amount of power and discretion uh, that the bureaucracy that federal agents have when people talk about the deep state. Really, the fact of the matter is that elected officials are far weaker uh, than the career bureaucracy. These people are very, very difficult to fire. They're pretty much almost unfireable. Uh, they wield a great deal of authority, and when Congress passes a bill, they're the ones who actually decide what the bill says. Well, it's funny because you said people being fired. And, again, another question from Vito asking you whether or not Peter Strzok and Lisa Page should be fired for colluding and conspiring to fix an election. But because of the um, regulations involved with uh, federal hiring, it's almost impossible. These two people still have top-secret top clearance, that, but they, they're still there. Why aren't they fired? Yeah, it's a problem across all the government. There were a number of notorious cases where you just had people committing point-blank horrible crimes and they still couldn't be fired. This is something you see in government in general. You probably see it in a local city or a municipality where there are just public employees who are in the union and they are just impossible to fire. The classic example was the rubber room in uh, New York City's um, schools where teachers might be accused of sexual assault and sexual abuse, but they still could never be fired for years and years on end because of the union regulations. Uh, the situation in the federal government is almost as insane. It is very, very hard to fire federal employees. You can get rid of political appointees with some work, uh, but federal employees, you really have to work hard to get even one of them out, um, two of them, and we need to really remove a whole lot more than that. So I think it would really take uh, much more larger restructuring of the federal government. You would actually have to change, eliminate entire agencies and departments, and this is something that Republicans have talked about forever, but need, really needs to actually happen. Well, there is a YouTube video going viral, because uh, the perfect example is um, the VA situation, where we had people that should be fired within the VA, and you cannot get rid of them. They have just been shuffled around. And uh, one certain veteran was serving in the war on terror, came home, and went to the VA because whatever injury he received to his ankle, he needed to be taken to the VA. And he walks into the exam room, and the place was filthy. Uh, instruments were just strewn around. Waste paper baskets were overflowing. 
And he actually videotaped this, and his father then put it up on Twitter, and it's gone viral. So even with the VA scandal, that years how how many years have we known about the VA scandal? At least five, and yet we still have these conditions, and we cannot we cannot fire the people that are responsible for them. It's almost impossible to basically clean up a government agency for this kind of reason. Uh, the VA has been a permanent scandal. It got worse, obviously, during the Obama era when one of the missions was cutting veteran health care. This was one of their cost-saving means. But really, any kind of government health care program is going to be bad. It's going to be bad because it's going to consist. Um, it's not really for the benefit of the people that it's for. It's for the benefit of the various unions, of the various contractors, and those are the people who actually make money. Uh, we put in more money to the VA. Uh, it's still going to go out the door. It's going to go to the people who really benefit, not to the veterans. So it's a, it's just an ongoing problem. It's absolutely horrible. There are VA employees who committed ridiculous, horrifying abuses. Uh, they haven't been held accountable for it. And, you know, this is the treatment, the mistreatment of the people who were the heroes who did everything for their country and who came back to just socialism and contempt. Well, there's another question in the chat room. The chat room loves you, Daniel. Um, asking whether or not, you know, Ronald Reagan fired the air traffic controllers back in the 80s, and I remember that very well because I owned a travel agency back then. And uh wants to know why Trump can't do this. Now, if I remember correctly, as I remember the news articles that were going on at the time, um, the unions were just starting in the federal government. So the air traffic controllers at that time were not unionized. So Reagan was able to do it, and that's the problem. We've allowed the unions to take control of our federal government, which is another problem because the unions are the government employees. So when you negotiate for their contracts, the people that are negotiating for the contracts are the very employees. So they've got themselves covered coming and going. This is the major problem we have. How do we get rid of the union out of the federal government? And I don't ever see that happening. It's a huge problem, and again, we need to fundamentally restructure things. Um, again, the larger idea of a government union was never supposed to exist. Um, whatever legal protections existed for unions, they were supposed to be um, occurring in private workplaces. And then we shifted to the point where municipal unions increasingly, municipal unions, government unions, increasingly are the unions, because a lot, in, a lot in the private sector, unions haven't been doing so well. Uh, but in the government, you have the unions actually negotiating with the politicians they elect. Um, they fund much of the left institutions, the Democrat Party, and then they negotiate with the people that they support, which is blatant corruption, conflicts of interest, and all that. Uh, it's pretty bad at the federal government level. It's worse in um, municipal level, where entire cities are going bankrupt. There are things that the pre- there are things that the president can do. There are things that Congress can definitely do. Um, the question, obviously, is the willpower to actually do it, because without restructuring the federal government, without significantly, drastically cutting it down in size, um, we're never actually going to make any serious reforms. Yeah, well, Bob was following up saying that they did have the PATCO, uh, which was the air traffic control union at the time, but once they struck, they broke the union contract, thus they lost their union standing which gave Reagan the ability to fire them because now they were no longer a union. So, you know, it's, it's a really, really tough situation. Um, I'm looking at the clock. Good Lord, we only have about 15 minutes left. It's always fun have, having you on the show. I want to remind people that they can find you at the David Horowitz Freedom Center. You also have your blog, the Sultan Nish, at blogspot.com. 
Um, you also write for Front Page Magazine. Uh, one of the articles you talked about, and of course, being conservative, we are pro-Second Amendment, but the new way to go after the Second Amendment is by banks denying transactions if you are purchasing a gun or any firearm item. Uh, this is a big no. Uh, I know a number of years ago, PayPal tried to do that, and the customers went down really hard and heavy on it. Now, Bank of America, Citibank, and Wells Fargo are attempting to do the same thing. The problem with this is also is that Bank of America has a large contract with the federal government. So some of the legislators are going after and questioning whether or not we should yank the contract from them by because they are attempting to deny our Second Amendment rights. Are we going to see these banks back off, or are we going to see further whittling of our Second Amendment rights? They'll back off if the government holds them accountable, if we hold them accountable. If we don't, they're not. Um, it's not just Bank of America and Citigroup. At this point, a number of credit card processors and companies are actually uh, teaming up. They're getting together to do this. And the idea is basically to sideline the Second Amendment. So we've seen the sidelining of the First Amendment by, say, Facebook, Google, because they control much of what goes on on the Internet. Then you can have credit card processors and banks sidelining the Second Amendment. Then this way we never technically run into a conflict with the Bill of Rights, but we lose the Bill of Rights anyway. In other words, the only way you can uh, purchase a firearm or something like that is if you take cash out of the bank, and the next thing you know, the bank is going to say, well, why are you taking cash? And no one walks around with cash anymore. I hardly have cash in my wallet at any time now. So they're actually controlling us by controlling what can be done with our cards. And the next, of course, gun control measure will be prohibiting buying firearms with cash because they'll say that it actually – poses a security threat. So the end result is they'll, uh, find w- they'll find ways to close off all the loopholes, the way that California tried to target ammunition. They won't technically directly um, repeal the Second Amendment, but they'll effectively make it unviable. It's amazing how many different ways they can think up to attempt to destroy our republic. And some of them are pretty creative. And you think about it, We sit here at home as conservatives, and we just want to be left alone, live our lives, take care of our family, earn a good living, and just enjoy the the beauties and benefits of these United States. But instead, unless we remain vigilant like you do, uh, we'll never see the next hit coming. The nature of conservatives is we want to be left alone, we want to live our own lives. The left is a radical movement that does not believe in leaving anybody alone. It believes in going after them and forcing them to comply. Uh, conservatism is, is individualistic. The left is collectivist. Its entire reason for existing is to build massive organizations and to reconstruct society along its own lines, and this is exactly why you get these nightmarish dictatorships, whether it's North Korea or um, the Soviet Union. That's why they continue going after us, because to them, this is their reason for meaning. This is their purpose in life. Our reason, our purpose, our meaning comes from families. It comes from God. It comes from our communities. Theirs comes from imposing this huge dictatorship on everybody. Well, I want to bring you back around to the immigration uh, because Trump had the travel ban. And he, they said, no, it's not good enough. Go back and rewrite it. So he went back and rewrote it. And again, once again, it's going before the Supreme Court. Um, will Trump ever be able to impose a travel ban to control and prevent terrorists from coming into the United States, or are we going to end up with this complete open border policy, whether we like it or not? 
the bottom line is, I said this originally the first time around, they should have stuck with the first one because no matter how many times you rewrite it, um, biased federal judges are going to find reasons why the president can't do what he's legally allowed to do. And by the way, the Obama administration was able to do pretty much the same thing, and there were no objections from federal judges. But again, there's been a pattern of federal judges announcing that basically President Trump has no right to do anything. Um, Obama was able to um, illegally pass an amnesty without Congress, without any actual legal basis for it. But Trump has no right to even withdraw and must continue accepting um, the so-called uh, dream applications. So this is the bizarre situation. And again, uh, the larger problem is judicial supremacism. You have the idea that judges can control anything, can determine anything, can tell elected officials what to do. And this is something that's fundamentally alien to the United States. Um, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, and um, some of our leading presidents were very clear in that they said that the courts do not actually have the ability to do this. They don't have a supremacist ability to tell the elected branches of government what to do, and this is something that Trump needs to return to. He needs to return to the approach of Lincoln, of Jefferson, of Jackson, um, that the president and the Congress actually have the right to govern the country. Uh, the courts don't have that right, but right now, instead, President Trump has been forced to um, go to the courts every time and then keep moving up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court will hopefully do the right thing. But meanwhile, um, the left effectively gets veto power and everything. It gets to be able to freeze uh, measures running for months, for years even, and this is a, it's impossible to govern this way. Well, we're seeing the invasion at the California border, this caravan that's come across, and lo and behold, the attorneys, these immigration attorneys were in Mexico waiting for these people, telling them and, and saying, all right, this is how you're going to be able to enter the United States, and they're going under the auspices of the U.N. Uh, Refugee Resettlement Program. This this UN resettlement program, we have to get rid of this thing. We absolutely have to get rid of it. Uh, the good thing that the Obama, I mean that the Trump administration has been doing, um, they've been starving a lot of these resettlement agencies. Some of them have had to close. There isn't the kind of money coming in that they're used to, uh, which is a good thing. It's a good start, but it's absolutely not the conclusion of it. And we need to get the United Nations entirely out of our legal system, which absolutely means that we have to get it out of our asylum policy. There's, we have right now an insane situation. Let's say even if we were to build a wall, right now anybody can come to a point of entry at a border crossing and say, I want to apply for asylum, and we have to let them do it. Um, anybody can fly into an airport. They can do it with a fake visa, um, with a fake passport. This is something that actually Ramzi Youssef, who was the guy who set off the um, first World Trade Center bombing, did. And they can apply for political asylum, and then we actually have to process them. This is an insane situation, and it needs to end. It is. We're allowing the U.N. Uh, mandate dictate what American law is to supersede American law. And that's not what a sovereign nation should be doing. Uh, we need to get the U.N. out of American politics and law, and we're not doing it. Uh, the refugee resettlement here in South Carolina, we've been fighting them in the Greenville-Spartanburg area. There's been a lawsuit going on over that where the refugees are just being dumped in neighborhoods unbeknownst to the people around them and without even a say. Now the local municipality is responsible for uh, taking care of them, housing them, educating them, the medical care. And they may not even have the funds to do that. But this is what has been imposed upon this, and the U.N. Refugee Resettlement Program is an absolute disaster. 
it is a disaster, and it's meant to transform communities, to transform states, and to rebuild them as Democrat strongholds. Meanwhile, it's bringing in diseases that had never even existed in certain communities. It's bringing in terrorism um, into our communities. It's putting us at risk. Um, it's bankrupting entire communities that suddenly have to provide 30, 40, 50 different interpreters in different languages, which um, some small town somewhere is not remotely capable of doing. Um, you have these supposed migrants coming in from all around the world. And it's important to actually look back and remember um, where our refugee policies come from. Um, they, our refugee policies were set up basically to allow refugees from communism to come to America. That meant Cubans, it meant Czechs, it meant Jews, it meant Hungarians, people who were escaping communism, who were actual refugees, were supposed to be coming to America. And then you had this huge explosion. Um, you had you, you went from uh, maybe a few hundred or a few thousand people a year to 100,000 to 200,000. You had an insane explosion because most of the people coming in are not refugees. They're migrants. Um, we've expanded the definition of refugee to mean almost anything. Right now, uh, most of the so-called refugees are economic migrants coming from countries that are not democratic, that might have some sort of natural disaster, or that might have crime or a civil war. And, again, that's really most of the planet. Most of the planet qualifies to be a refugee. And that's, that is the God's honest truth. Now, you mentioned economic uh, refugee. There's no such thing as an economic refugee. But suddenly this is a term that is acceptable and used now in the refugee program. I was listening to the news broadcast just before coming on air, and even on Fox News they say economic refugee. No. <laughs> There's no such thing, really. You know, and it used to be the policies that if you had a refugee, they're a migrant. They're actually an alien. Um, but yeah. you had the policy originally, if, if you had a refugee, you attempted to resettle them in a nearby country to where they were from where they were fleeing. And then you would screen them and over time try to resolve whatever conflict or whatever situation caused the person to flee. If you can't do that, then you look to migrate them to another country. That's a years-long process, but instead it's being done, and it's mandated to be done within 24 hours. That's unacceptable. It is unacceptable. And the whole idea of refugee, the original legal premise for it was that you were actually coming in from a country where you faced legal persecution. If you're coming through Mexico and then showing up at the United States border, um, you can try Mexico. You're supposed to legally actually apply for refugee status in Mexico, not in the United States. That's completely illegitimate. Then we have the so-called Syrian refugees who are coming out of refugee camps in Jordan or Turkey. Again, you can apply for asylum there. Uh, we're not obligated to take them even within the insane laws that have been inflicted on us. Well, Daniel, we're down to our last four and a half minutes. It has been an absolute blast, as always. And, you know, just just send me a note when you want to come on. I'm glad to have you. And, I'm, again, I have to apologize. I was so crazy up there in Myrtle Beach at the convention that I didn't have a chance to sit down and, and chat with you. I apologize. It's, we were all running around. It was an amazing weekend. There were some amazing people there. And, you know, it's every day. Every day we're rushing. We're doing what we can. There's, the left is attacking us from so many sides. And there's only so much time. Well, there's only just so much time. And we are not vigilant. We will lose this great nation. Daniel, God bless you for all the hard work you do. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. All right, check out Daniel Greenfield. Check out the sultanish.blogspot.com. He's also up at the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. 
Uh, he does marvelous work. His articles are in-depth, very thoughtful, and definitely, if you have a chance, read the one about the dust of Jacob. It is it is amazing article. Cal, that's it. We all got for today. Uh, you still that was us, a good Cal. show, Annie. <laughs> I'm sorry I couldn't participate, but your listeners would only hear me coughing, and I didn't want them to be subject to that. Excellent show, my dear. <laughs> Well, we're going to be back on Friday. We've got Tim Ball. He's got a new book out also, Debunking Climate Change. Uh, He's a doctor also. He'll be with us. And then there's a filmmaker out of uh, England named Mark Sutherland. Uh, He's got some great uh, pro-American videos that he's been posting. Uh, He's also a friend of J.P. Sloan. Um, So Mark Sutherland is going to be with us next week. And uh, you and Curtis will be doing, I believe, the show on the 8th for me because my husband's having another surgical procedure, and I have no idea what time that's going to be scheduled or when he'll be uh, d- discharged from the hospital. So I want to thank mm. you, Kel, for stepping in on that one. Um, Absolutely. You're not going to have a show tonight. You're not going to have a show tonight, as I understand. So no, I, hope that you, I, I had uh, a guest, and he had to cancel at the last moment, and I have this terrible, terrible cold, and... Um, uh, doing the show solo, uh, uh, people would be getting nothing but my hitting the mute button every two minutes, and it would not be an enjoyable experience for them. So I'm hoping that I can get one of the uh, folks over there at Global Patriot Radio to uh, do a show tonight in my stead. Well, Vito, if you're listening, step up to the plate. <laughs> step into Kel's place. Um, that's all we got, Kel. So uh, you just feel better, and I'll talk to you soon, sweetie. Absolutely. Thanks, Eddie. All right. Uh, We're going to leave the show now and just want to thank everyone for participating in the chat room and for those that called in and those that stopped in over on the Facebook and YouTube page. So I'll leave you with our closing number when the roll is called up yonder. Until then, I say good night and God bless.